Hi, you're listening to Stefan Levera Podcast. Will Bitcoin enable the sovereign individual thesis to play out and will we see many smaller governments? Or will the state successfully find some kind of counter and retain the level of taxation, surveillance and control? Robert Breedlove and Jesse Lawler join me to debate. This show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. In their effort to spread Bitcoin knowledge and awareness, Swan is giving away a free book, Inventing Bitcoin, rated 4.9 stars by Swan co-founder Jan Pritzker. To get your free ebook or audiobook version of Inventing Bitcoin, go to swanbitcoin.com slash freebook. Just pay it forward, share it with at least three family and friends. And if you join the Swan Force at swanbitcoin.com slash enlist, you'll get a special link to the free copy of Inventing Bitcoin that will help you recruit new Bitcoiners. You can share the book with anyone, and if they eventually start stacking with Swan, you'll get credit for that referral. Spread Bitcoin knowledge and Swan Bitcoin, the best and safest way to start accumulating Bitcoin. So head over to swanbitcoin.com slash free book. Knox is a Bitcoin custodian dedicated to ensuring their insurance protection covers the full value of their customers' assets. For example, suppose a fiduciary wants to hold $250 million of Bitcoin with Knox. Knox will seek to obtain $250 million of insurance. It's dedicated exclusively to that account and adjustable to volatility. There's no fractional coverage or narrow scope. This is insurance for what it's worth, a tool to transfer risk. And check out my recent episode with Alex Daskalov from the team. If you are a Bitcoin company, investment fund, trust, or family office, check out Knox for your insured custody. KnoxCustody.com Are you ready for Bitcoin Black Friday coming up on November 27th? This is a project from my friends over at Bitcoin Magazine and the team behind the Bitcoin 2021 conference. It's a celebration of the growing Bitcoin economy. On the site, you can find active deals for up to 50% off on your favorite Bitcoin gear and other merchants that accept BTC. And it doesn't stop with spending Bitcoins. The Fold team has teamed up with Bitcoin Black Friday to bring you a special promo for the much-awaited Bitcoin Back Card. Spend fiat and earn Bitcoin. Now, if you sign up for early access for the Fold card on Bitcoin Black Friday, you will be entered into a raffle to win a whole Bitcoin. That's right. Go to BitcoinBlackFriday.com right now and sign up for the Fold Bitcoin Rewards Card to enter and get a chance to win an entire Bitcoin. Here's the debate. Robert and Jesse, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hey, Stefan. Glad to be here. So guys, uh, maybe just take a minute to introduce yourselves just for the listeners. Let's start with you, Robert. Yeah, my name is Robert Breedlove. I'm a founder, CEO, and CIO of Parallax Digital freedom maximalist and Bitcoin advocate. And you, Jesse? I'm Jesse Lawler. A, uh, I guess I'm still on my first Bitcoin four-year cycle, so I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, completing the turn sometime in 2021, but have been paying attention to the space pretty closely for the last couple of years. I'm a longtime technology guy and um, yeah, I guess sort of a longtime listener, first-time caller as far as uh, you know, dipping my toe into the Bitcoin podcast world. But, uh, but yeah, really familiar with, with both of your work and um, yeah, looking forward to this discussion. Fantastic. So today we are going to chat about this topic of will Bitcoin and dissident tech splinter governments? And I guess another way to also think of this is, is it going to massively multiply the number of governments that we have around the world? And so it's going to be a bit of a friendly, informal debate. And so Robert is going to take the affirmative and Jesse is going to take the negative on this. So uh, let's have a let's say a five minute intro from each side, uh, opening arguments. So Robert, do you want to kick us off here? Sure thing. Um, so I'd like to first say that this argument is premised on the book that's very popular in Bitcoin circles called The Sovereign Individual. 
And the general thesis of that book is that microprocessing technology or digital technologies will actually subvert and destroy the nation state as an organizational model for humanity. And this is, it has a lot to do, as the authors argue, with the logic of violence and how it is employed, how it has been employed throughout history and how digital tech sort of shapes the returns to violence, the actual uh, economic benefit to violence. And in this domain, Bitcoin plays a very, very large role. So um, information societies, they actually, as we move into the digital age, the great promise is to dramatically reduce the returns to violence, uh, largely because in the digital age, we can transcend locality, um, which means that you don't need, you know, compared to the 20th century, you don't need to be in any single location to work and reap economic benefit. You can actually take your work uh, into the digital domain and be anywhere. Um, so this drastically reduces the ability of governments to project dominion uh, over you because you're not you're not local, right? You're not tethered to any particular territory. And um, what this means is the grand shift is is a shift away from power being the primary driver of social organization towards something uh, more like efficiency and. To get into how Bitcoin, there's a lot of technology shapes this a lot going into the 21st century, but Bitcoin is very important for this specifically. And the reason being because the nation state's revenue model is built off two things. One is non-consensual taxation. So they set a tax rate that you're forced to pay. And two is inflation. And just to look at the U.S. government, for instance, this year. Uh, they generated about five and a half trillion dollars in tax receipts. So those are explicit non-consensual taxes uh, that they farm from their citizens. And they've also printed so far in 2020 about three point six trillion dollars. So that would be inflation revenues, um, which is also a form of theft. So we're looking for 2020, at least in the U.S., we've got about a 60 percent explicit tax uh, revenue for government. And we've got a 40 percent implicit tax revenue for government. And in that lens, you can think of Bitcoin as kind of like the ultimate offshore jurisdiction. It's the it's promises to be the ultimate tax haven, um, and that you can put capital in a place that's totally resistant to both inflation um, and, in the long run, we think explicit taxation as well. And so that the the thesis here is that. Bitcoin acts as kind of like a Swiss bank account in your pocket, your brain, or even in your circle of trust. And the taxing authorities that have grown accustomed to treating their taxpayers like, like a farmer treats his cows, um, you know, keeping them in a field ready to be milked, that in the 20th century, Bitcoin and other dissident or digital tech actually gives those cows the ability to grow wings. Um, so we think you know, the thesis of the, the book here is that the 20th century nation state will starve to death as its tax revenues and inflation revenues decline. And we've seen this happen before. There's a lot of instances of this throughout history when the actual logic of violence changes that these social institutions making up that society shift as well. But there is a lag, right? Um, Rome started to fall um, and was falling 
for a long time while its social institutions remained in place, it took, you know, centuries before they, they finally collapsed. So there's a lot of inertia to social, social organization. And I would argue that we're, we're kind of in the death throes of the nation state today. Um, and when that collapse occurs, I think you could point to what happened in Soviet Russia as something somewhat similar. Uh, the large state fragments into many smaller states. Um, the projection of violence and dominion becomes much more localized because the cost of maintaining far-flung borders is no longer supported by the, the underlying economy, right? The economy, again, uh, is, is less vulnerable to uh, parasitic taxation and inflation. So Bitcoin, for the first time, it, it, it's forcing governments, which have grown accustomed to enjoying this monopoly over currency, that they could just appreciate at will to milk everyone. Uh, it's going to force them to compete. So we're, we're moving away from a world in which citizens are treated like cattle and into a world in which citizens are treated like customers. And, you know, Bitcoin closes the window of inflation as a revenue option um, and gives people the ability to opt into an optimal monetary policy, which is a 0% terminal inflation rate, um, or, or said differently, 0% unexpected inflation, which renders that state monopoly on the printing press less and less relevant by the day as people wake up to this truth. Um, so I think that that was kind of a five minute intro. Um, there's a, there's a several other points in this book. Uh, we'll try to hit as many as we can today, but the general thesis is that by starving the state of taxation and inflation, it causes it to shrink necessarily. Um, and it draws on several examples throughout history when, when similar, um, changes in the logic of violence and extortion have changed the shape of the state. Excellent. Thank you very much, Robert. So, Jesse, let's hear it from you. Take a take five minutes and let's hear you lay out your thesis. Yeah, you know, well, I guess first of all, I should I tip my hat a little bit to to Bitcoin and let everybody know that my I love Bitcoin credentials are hopefully not too diminished by my I am an unapologetic statist credentials. Also, I know that that's probably going to you know raise some hackles in the audience, but um. You know, all of us are looking forward to hyper-Bitcoinization. And when we think about what a hyper-Bitcoinized world might look like, one of the things that people say is, well, when that happens, we won't call Bitcoin Bitcoin anymore. We'll just call it money. And that's true because one of the things that we know about successful technologies that do gain mass adoption is that they become so embedded in everyday culture by virtue of their own success that they're thereafter totally invisible, or unless you really go out of your way to think about them, they're unremarkable in, in the classic sense of that word. So like when you have guests over to your house, nowadays, you don't like show them your light switches and flip your lights on and off and try to impress them because, you know, you know that they've got electricity too, and that likely they've had electricity for either decades or generations, depending on what part of the world they live in. So here's, here's the thing with Bitcoin is, or, or rather with, with technologies like that is we're looking forward to Bitcoin making that jump into being a ubiquitous, it's there everywhere, it's part of everyone's life technology. But there are lots of technologies that have already made that jump. And a technology that I'd like to talk about a little today is one that is already there, that we're all participating in right now, and that it's in that category of being so successful that it's invisible. And that is the city. Now, 
I could say civilization rather than the city, but I, I wanted to go with city because it's easier to kind of step back and think of the city as a technology. You can think of aerial photographs where you see freeways and on-ramps and traffic flows, and it looks like you know the gears of an old watch or, or maybe like the biological parts of a living cell. And if you just say you know society or civilization, it's, it's less concrete and it's harder to see the machine that's there. But a city is essentially a machine for increasing human population density. I'm going to say that again to underscore the point. A city is a machine for increasing human population density. Now, why the hell would you want that? Why would you want to have higher population density? Oftentimes we think of that as a bad thing. But as I'm sure Robert's actually going to agree with this, the good thing about increased population density is you get more and more humans interacting more frequently, and that leads to enhanced trade. And not just trade in goods and services, although that's a big part of it, but also trade in ideas. And cities, for all the bad things that you might be able to say about them, they are an accelerant of civilization because of that increased trade in ideas. Now, probably most listeners of this podcast are going to be familiar with the idea of the Lindy effect, either from Bitcoin reading or Nassim Taleb. But, you know, that idea that the longer something's been around, the longer that it's likely to stick around. And if you want a, a long-term trend that you can feel pretty safe betting on, which is basically, this is the crux of my argument, is that the history of humanity is the story of incremental progress on, you know, there's local backslides, but a clear long-term trend of packing more and more human minds closer together with an accelerated trade of ideas. And one of those ideas that have always occurred to people and always will is, hey, you know, I could kill you and steal your girl and take your stuff. And, and because that idea constantly is going to occur to people, the story of humanity is also a story of increasingly sophisticated sets of rules that we call laws or even governments. And, and, and that is a story that has continued since 6,000 years ago up until the present day with, with no significant deviations. The styles of governments have changed, but governments uh, consolidating, getting more powerful, getting more elaborate is, is a clear upward trajectory to where we are today, which is arguably the biggest, most powerful, um, you know, extended governments, even beyond nation states into, you know, groups of nations working together that we've ever seen. And I'm not going to make an argument whether that's, you know, a morally good thing or a morally bad thing, but just that it's a historically true thing. So when Robert says, and this was sort of where our argument on, on Twitter started, that Bitcoin is going to massively multiply the world's number of sovereign governments, and, and for the purposes of arguing on Twitter, we said massively multiply being over like 100 times what they are today, which would be, I, I think, somewhere in the like 19,000 governments or something is what that would be just based on the number of governments in the world today that claim sovereignty. Um, basically, what he's saying there is that the 6,000 year Lindy trajectory of people living closer and closer together with strangers in ever larger groups with increasingly sophisticated sets of rules is going to stop it's going to turn on its heel and is going to reverse course by multiple orders of magnitude. And frankly, I just don't think that's realistic. All right. Well, uh, I think that's a really interesting thesis you've laid out there. So I think uh, let's have an opening round of rebuttals from each side. So Robert, let's hear it from you. Yeah, sure thing. <clears throat> so I'd like to, uh, to specify first, and this might be the crux of our argument in some ways, is that I think the tweet or mention, as I said, we're moving from a world with 200 countries to one with more like 20,000. Now, I'm not sitting on that number saying we are going to have 20,000 countries in this um, sovereign individual future. 
But the point that I am making is that the state will be starved, it will shrink, it will fragment, so we will have more than we have today. And in the long run Bitcoinized future, I think it's much more likely, you know, as we revert back to this free market paradigm, that we're more likely to see small free private cities or citadels, as they're popularly called. Um, because, again, the it's just an economics equation. It's an equation of, of power or economics that you can't possibly govern that large of a territory when you cannot extract revenues um, surreptitiously at scale, right? You can't project power as easily. So I would say what one another way, uh, the analogy that's used in the book is that they compare actually the digital domain to the high seas and that there's a reason we have international waters around the world. And that's because the territory of the ocean is economically infeasible to project dominion over, right? We just can't patrol it. We can't police it. There's no, there's no economic benefit for a government trying to um, enforce laws on the high seas. So when you go into international waters on your cruise ship, you can gamble and do all these other things. Um, digital space is similar in that it's this impenetrable uh, space through which you can't easily project jurisdictional dominion. And the, the other argument there is that the tax rates themselves, right? Like we, we're at like a 40% marginal tax rate in the U.S. That if you compound these numbers over a, an average lifetime of earnings, you get into the tens of millions of dollars for even just um, kind of your, your, your general uh, high income wage earner. And so it's, there's this huge incentive for people to move into Bitcoin uh, and move their capital positions uh, into Bitcoin that really does starve the state. So again, if we just look at, um, you know, if we just assume the inflation number alone, right, 40% of government revenues in the U.S. would just go away. Like what would happen to the U.S. government? Right. All of a sudden, they're more accountable to their P&L. All of a sudden, they can't just uh, implement these, quote unquote, temporary government solutions, which, as we all know, tend to be more permanent than anything else. And just by a function of economics, the organization we call the U.S. government necessarily shrinks. Um, and as this happens more and more, you see a grassroots growth, right, where, where democracy and free market paradigm becomes more of a governing feature of society than does top-down command and control systems like we are under today. Um, and so I think, you know, to, to hit Jesse's uh, example of the city, I would argue the city itself is more, more of a composite of technologies and socioeconomic systems. Um, and I actually think the digital age reduces the benefits of population density in a lot of ways, right? Because Historically, we needed to be in close uh, communion with one another to trade goods and services, achieve the division of labor, knowledge specialization, and all of this. But that has at least been somewhat mitigated through digital tech, as we're proving on this podcast today. Uh, we're all three in different um, territories, right? And I, so in that way, I actually think you can look at digital space, if you will, as kind of this celestial city into which 
at least at first, the cognitive elite are moving, right? Everyone's realizing and waking up to this huge change that, hey, I can move my business and my capital into digital space where it's untouchable. Um, I can do business at, you know, near zero cost of reproduction. I have very, very high uh, returns on, on my fixed cost. And I can store my savings in Bitcoin, which is the base money for this global digital non-state economy, um, in, in something that can't be seized or, or, or touched. So I think that we, we can look at it more like that, like the, the digital domain, if you will, is a competing city. It's a city that's out-competing um, our, our growingly anachronistic notion of the localized city where you have to, I can only do business in Los Angeles or New York, right? It, we, it, it enables a true globalized society. Um, and it offers us a, you know, a money that's just radically new and almost totally beyond misappropriation. So Jesse, how would you respond to that argument around the declining tax revenues and uh, the components around the, the city yeah, I think it's a great point that um, governments will be forced to change. However, I, I th think one of the mistakes that a, a lot, a lot of, um, I, I guess, sort of Bitcoin utopianism is is uh, drowning in these days, is the idea that like Bitcoin is going to be the last disruption. That there's some sort of like end of history finality. That now that Bitcoin exists in the world, that the rest of the you know complex adaptive systems in the world aren't going to find ways to respond. Now, basically, I'm going to agree carte blanche with, with everything that Robert said about Bitcoin being more difficult to tax, about digital space being more difficult to control human behavior in. All those things are true. Um, but again, that, that's based on what today's technology has. And, and we have no idea what's going to be invented next year, next week, next decade. Um, every decade, you know, looking back on our history, you know, certainly for the last few hundred years since technology has really accelerated, has been filled with disruptive events. And I, I think it's naive to think that because, um, you know, basically the good guys, you know, we all consider sort of the, uh, you know, the Bitcoin freedom fighter types as, as the good guys um, came up with this, you know, great new tool in our arsenal doesn't mean that there's not going to be counter moves. And it might be that the, you know, I, I, OK, so let, let me also call attention to something that in, in Robert's opening statement, he, he kept bringing up the word nation state, not, not just state, but nation state. And, and that's, that's really important for his side of this argument, because the nation state, kind of the idea of a geographically determinate state is, you know, something that we've had is the dominant thing in the world for the last couple of hundred years. And I fully agree that's on the way out nation states, but that doesn't mean that state as in like a, a governmental system of telling people what what they can and can't do and, and you know what sort of the rules of behavior are I don't think states are going anywhere I think nation states have have a lot of problems ahead of them and and certainly the revenue model is going to need work but saying that something is going to need work and innovation um, isn't the same as saying that it's on its last legs and it's going to die um, you know I, I think that we should probably think of nation states as kind of being like a you know, almost like the, the the cop Terminator in Terminator Two when he got frozen and then shot with the gun and he shattered, but then reformed. I, th I think that in the wake of something like hyper Bitcoinization, we will get governments that will certainly need to radically adapt and might wind up looking very different than the government structures that we're used to now. But that doesn't mean that there's going to be more of them, and it doesn't mean that they're going to be less powerful. 
That's an interesting idea. And I think perhaps I might contrast that with what we're calling the nation state. And it may be more like we see many more smaller city states, right? Singapore, Hong Kong, Monaco, kind of smaller areas. Uh, I guess Monaco is probably a special example, but maybe like Liechtenstein, Singapore, Hong Kong are probably examples there. Robert, how would you think of that idea are you thinking of it like we're just going to see a lot more of the city-state type arrangements? Yeah, so let's try to just clear up the terminology here. I think, I forget who said it, that most arguments are just two people having two different definitions for the same word or term. So let's try to clear that up. Bravo. I would say firstly that Bitcoin undoubtedly is an accelerant to innovation and disruption. So I'm not at all advocating for Bitcoin being any kind of final disruption. I do think it is perhaps a final disruption to base money, which is a huge tool, huge innovation. But it does not mean that other distributed technologies and digital innovations that we can't even imagine at this point won't be enabled uh, by the free market paradigm that, that Bitcoin reinvigorates. And I do also agree that there will be nation state counterstrokes. I think central bank digital currencies are a clear counterstroke to Bitcoin, right? No central bank was talking about a digital currency 10 years ago. Uh, this is clearly them, them tr trying to vie to hold on to their existing territory. And then I would say that nation, whether we call them nation states or states, what I am saying is that governments themselves will now be forced to function more like private enterprises, which means they will be accountable to their P&L, uh, which means they will not be able to swell with um useless bureaucracy, right? Like, I love the example that Safety gives about the Lebanon train authority. Like it still exists today, but there hasn't been a, a track of railroad in Lebanon in like 50 years or something like that. Like, and the, the quote, there's nothing more permanent than a temporary government implementation. Like that's the problem with government is that it's just a wasteful, uh, parasitic, uh, body essentially, right? It has no accountability to its PL like the rest of us, like everyone else in the world. And that's the big change here is that it's we're moving away from a world where these monopolies are sustainable into one in which they are forced to compete. Um, and so I think, and what's interesting here is that a, a government's entire ability to tax, it ultimately depends on the same vulnerabilities that people have that gets shaken down by the mob or extorted by the mob, right? There has to be this either explicit or implicit threat of violence for someone to willingly give up uh, value in a non-consensual transaction, right? Otherwise, it's a market-based transaction. You come to an agreement, you reach a rate, and you make an exchange. Uh, that's the difference between a monopoly and a free market. And this that asymmetry, right, between a government being able to shake you down or extort you with violence is being disrupted by the asymmetry uh, intrinsic to mathematics, which is frankly just that it's easier to multiply than divide. So we can multiply prime numbers very simply, right? But to disaggregate those prime numbers and decompose the product of large prime numbers is all but impossible. And that fundamental asymmetry is the core premise of cryptography. Right. That's why it's so easy to verify Bitcoin, but impossible to uh, hack someone's private key, for instance. And that is going to facilitate 
the emergence of an economy that's more true to a spontaneous adaptive system, which is the free market, right? The, the free market is the social expression of a complex adaptive system. And the decision-making in that space is going to be driven um, not by bureaucracy, but rather by uh, incentives, right? So we're moving into a world where incentives are going to drive uh, socioeconomic action much more than uh, top-down command and control, if you will. And I just think that, that it's, that's, it's interesting, too, that like what governments are intended to do, they're not creating really any value, right? They're protecting the property rights of those that do create value, right? That the underlying economy that goes into the world and works and produces, the governments and, and political sphere, they're just extracting value off of this economic host, if you will, um, to fund themselves. And when you, and dividing the spoils, like, just like with mathematics, it can never be anything but primitive since by the laws of math, it doesn't scale efficiently. Um, so I just think that it, there's something, there's a really fundamental change here and that we are recreating a society founded more on mathematics and less on primitive force, if you will. And that's the big change. That's what re, we're, it's almost like you, you've changed the symmetry of violence back to the hunter-gatherer uh, stage where everyone was armed, everyone you know had more or less equal combat skills. So there was no world government or, or a government over hundreds of millions of people. There were small tribes, right? Everyone was equally equipped with offensive and defensive technologies. Whereas if you look at the feudal age, you may have one armed knight, right? Heavily armed knight on horseback who could kill hundreds of peasants, right? There's a big asymmetry there in government centralized. Uh, moving into the digital age, again, we're all going to be more or less equipped uh, with both the digital tools and then through things like 3D printing uh, and whatnot with, with offensive kinetic tools as well. So I, that, that's my, my general thesis that we're moving back to a more symmetric society. Back to the show in a moment, but if we're heading towards a sovereign individual future, well, you want to make sure you've got your Bitcoin keys backed up. Go to cyphersafe.io. They are producing the Cypher Wheel product. So if you've invested in a Bitcoin hardware wallet, are you keeping those 24 words, the BIP39C, just backed up on that piece of paper? Well, make sure you've got it backed up in a way that's fireproof, waterproof, rustproof, petproof, and tamper evident. It comes in a wheel shape and it masks the words of your seed. So make sure you or your loved ones have access to your Bitcoins if an accident occurs. Go and get yours at cyphersafe.io and use code LAVERA for a discount. And finally, have you looked into Unchained Capital, building Bitcoin native financial services on a foundation of multi-signature? These multi-signature vaults are designed for ultra-secure long-term storage, and there's no setup or storage fees if you build them on your own. You can use Trezor, Ledger, or Cold Card. And if you need a white glove treatment service, their team will teach you all about multi-signature. They'll ship you two Trezor Model T hardware wallets, answer all your questions, and then deposit a thousand dollars of Bitcoin in your vault through their concierge service. They also offer an OTC desk in certain states of the US, which is great for self-directed Bitcoin retirement accounts or for companies moving Bitcoin to Treasury. Unchained also offer business accounts and a concierge service that can help move your corporate treasury to Bitcoin. 
where your team controls the private keys. Check them out and enter code LAVERA when you're ordering a concierge onboarding service to get $50 off. That website is unchained-capital.com. So Jesse, how would you respond there to Robert's point around the asymmetry that basically Bitcoin pushes more in the direction of you know, uh, in the individual as opposed to the, the state? I I agree that the state will need to respond. I don't have any doubt that you know the many humans that make up things like governments um will will be thinking about ways to respond and and you know there there's a lot of brain power that's going to go to making uh governments and societies response robust. Um I think that the idea that we want a symmetry of violence is is laughable and, and absurd because um, really we, we he's right in that like in hunter gatherer days we did have a symmetry of violence between individuals. I mean, basically the the strength of your arm or or whether your rock was sharper than the next person's rock, um, you know, was basically all that divided you know the winners from the losers in a battle. Um, and to live during those times was to have a very very high likelihood of being murdered by another human rather than dying of of old age or something as we do now if if you look at the statistics on the types of society and the um you know relative abundance of death by murder it it is absolutely absolutely per capita just shocking how violent things used to be if you lived um you know a thousand years ago 2000 years ago 10000 years ago um just it's off the charts, you know, thousandfold more deaths by violence than we see in today's cultures. And people say, well, you know, what about you know, the Second World War killed 50 million people? Yeah, it killed 50 million people. But the population of that world, the world at that time was so much larger that your chances of dying as, as a combatant or a civilian in the Second World War versus your chances of, you know, just, you know, being killed by a guy with a rock if you lived 10,000 years ago were absolutely minuscule. So a symmetry of violence is is just an absurd notion to actually be rooting for. Yeah, I, I would deeply, fundamentally, completely disagree. A symmetry in any society between any group of people across any domain is preferable to an asymmetry. Why would you ever advocate one group of people having anything, access to anything that another group does not necessarily? Granted, we're all born with a natural diversity of skills, know-how, experience. That's what serves the economy, right? That we can each specialize in our area of expertise and trade with one another um, with sound private property rights. We can resolve those disputes with one another with sound rule of law so we can handle it nonviolently. That's what creates abundance. That's what creates the division of labor. Um, but symmetry of access to goods, services, knowledge is what fosters a healthy socioeconomic world. To advocate for having one group that has control over violence and everyone else is forcibly disarmed is the the pathway to totalitarianism, right? That, well, let, let, let's not put too many words in my mouth. I, I understand where you're going for, but that's not exactly what I said. Well, let me finish. Uh, so Bitcoin there and digital tech in general, again, 3D printing, it's, it is leveling the playing field across the board for people to have access to the things that they need, whether those things are guns, whether those things are unconfiscatable capital, whether those things are even food, trade. Uh, it, it enables free exchange and free exchange is the wellspring 
of economic abundance, right? The state does not add anything to that. The state is the local monopoly on violence to preserve private property rights with nonviolent dispute resolution. But with digital tech, we have something that disincentivizes violence, so it mitigates the need for the state, which is the general argument here. And to get into the World War thing, like death per capita in warfare quadrupled in the 20th century. It is no coincidence that the century of total war was also the century of central banking, right? And Bitcoin, this is the most important promise of Bitcoin, is that it's disruptive to gold, which is at the foundation of central banking, which is at the foundation of government, which is at the foundation of global warfare. So I would argue vociferously uh, that symmetry of access to things, including armaments, is good for society. So Jesse, do you want to just clarify uh, on that point? Yeah, I'd like to comment on the um, death in warfare thing, which I'm I'm sure that's true, that death in warfare did grow during the 20th century. But I wasn't talking about death in warfare. I was talking about death in person-on-person violence, somebody killing another person. Now, that could be me, you know, murdering my neighbor because I have a a property line dispute with him or death in a war. Um, And really, if we only count death in warfare, me killing my neighbor over a property right dispute completely disappears. Um, If you look at total person-on-person violence during the 20th century, it was less than it had been in the preceding century and less than it had been in the century prior to that and less than it had been in the century prior to that. And you basically see an asymptotic slope going upwards into our primeval past where things have gotten less and less violent as time has gone on, even though we've got these you know, huge outbreaks of wars that have big absolute numbers, but per capita, we live in the by far the most peaceful time in all human experience. And that trend has been absolutely continuing and, and you know, conflating only deaths in nation state combat with your actual chance of some dude killing you is, is just, it, it misrepresents the facts. Well, I would say that the progression to a more peaceful society has not been driven by the state. Uh, that also misrepresents the facts. The civilizational advance is premised on what I just said, the division of labor. The creation of economic abundance means there are less incentives to fight. There are more, more wants are being satisfied. So there, there, we have reduced the scarcity of resources. So we have less incentive to fight. That is created by the productive economy. The productive economy is the host organism of the parasitic government. Unless transactions are conducted at consensual exchange rates, then no value is being created by the one imposing the exchange rate. And that's what the government does today. So I'm not saying that government goes away, but I am saying that we move into a world with less government overreach, no government overreach, frankly, it'll just be consensual transactions between citizen and government, and that the incentives to violence will be reduced because money will not no longer be confiscatable, right? Because by the way, when you go to war, the, the war is about the money, right? Every time Germany invades a European country, what's the first place they go? They go straight to the central bank to raid their gold hoards because war is very expensive. And if you can't, if you don't have an economic reward at the end of that effort, then it is not justifiable. It is not sustainable. So by having unconfiscatable money, I think we reduce uh, the proclivity for world war and violence in general. Um, And I think we also 
reduce the impediments to free trade, which enhances the abundance created by the free market, which further reduces the incentives to violence. Yeah. So, uh, look, I think um, those are some great points, guys. I th- I'd like to just bring up another point to get your thoughts on this, Robert. Now, I I agree with you, but in the spirit of being a fair moderator, I need to challenge you a little bit here as well. I could say, as an example, this increasing use of technology might actually enable techno-statism and technocracy. So we might see additional surveillance and additional financial surveillance, or we might see uh, just the fact that, you know, maybe digitally we have some freedom, but our bodies are physical and that states can leverage that vector to control us. What would you say to that? There's absolutely still a battle being waged. And I think the verdict is very much out on that. Um, It does seem to be that if we could veer towards a more Orwellian type future or towards something, you know, like we're describing, that's much uh, more free market and and honoring the sovereignty of the individual, let's say. The difference there is how, in, in my opinion, how much successful encryption technology actually proliferates. Because right now we're talking about Bitcoin that reduces the asymmetry uh, of government on money, right? But there's a number of other digital tools that also would need to become self-sovereign for people to reduce their dependency on centralized third parties. Um, this and, and, and to this end, I think projects like um, Elon Musk is putting satellites into space to, to have globalized internet accessibility, things like that are important. Uh, the, the Yurbit project, which actually allows people to do self-sovereign compute, projects like that, I think are important. Um, I've mentioned 3D printing, and I think this in general will be very important in that it allows us to basically manifest open source software into physical tools and devices that we need, like you know everything, screws, locks, keys, components, guns, all these things that people may, may need access to. Um, so I think, yeah, there's there's very much a a battle line being drawn between centralized monopolistic control of digital, uh, certain digital territories, right? Where we look at the data monopolies, like uh, the walled gardens of Google, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, versus the emergence, which we're still very early, of things that are much more uh, free market and, and, and voluntary. So there's, it's hard to see which direction it goes. And um, I think that Bitcoin is enabling the growth of the second category. Um, But you're absolutely correct. You know, that's what we're here to to talk about is the importance of uh, being a sovereign individual and supporting the right mode of human organization. Jesse, any uh, thoughts on that? Yeah, I'd like to go back to something that's come up a couple of times, um, the words wasteful and parasitic describing governments, which is, um, you know, it's great kind of like, you know, demonizing this whole idea word, but I, I th- think it actually really needs some, some closer looking at. There's this idea in biology called spandrels, and it's actually this term spandrel comes from architecture, but it's a spandrel is basically like a kind of useless little leftover that's there because it's not worth getting rid of. Like a, a great example, all of us are men, all of us have nipples. There's no reason for our nipples to exist. And, and if, if we could, you know, take the perspective of one of the cells in any of our nipples, that cell could say, my whole life 
is totally worthless. I, I metabolize, I, I pump blood, I need to, you know, make all my, you know, little cellular behaviors go on. And my, my life amounts to nothing. And, and my body makes me be a male nipple when I serve no fucking purpose whatsoever. And yet the human body, you know, has, has these things. We have a, a appendixes, you know, that, that I guess at some point in prehistory, they were useful, but there, there are plenty of bureaucratic waste things in perfectly functional organisms. And, and you could say, well, a, a single celled organism is far more efficient because it doesn't have the waste of a human nipple or the waste of an appendix that it needs to support. And you'd be absolutely right. You could make that exact same argument and say there is less waste in this much simpler life form that cannot aspire to the same sorts of things that a human being can. And, and part of this high level of organization that, that humans and, and you know higher level organisms are able to do is specifically because we have embedded bureaucratic waste within us. It, not because it's inherently evil or it's, you know, trying to be a parasite, but because it's just simply not worth getting rid of. It, it hasn't been worth it. Having a male nipple hasn't been, it hasn't cost enough of our ancestors their lives that it was worth actually selecting against male nipples. Thus, male nipples, as wasteful as they are, if you just look at them up close. And, and I feel like basically all of these, the state is bad, look at how wasteful it is, are, are just pointing at male nipples. And sure, the state states do terrible things, but I think that states do, we only allow states to get away with doing the terrible things that I'm sure Robert can give us a list of, you know, as long as his arm, because states also do absolutely wonderful, wonderful things. And, and like, uh, yes, the, the history of human progress has been a history of increasing technology, a history of increasing cities, a history of increasing, um, you know, government structures and, and government, uh, you know, control over larger and larger groups of people. And all of these things, we can't really say which is the cause and which is the effect. Um, they, they're all happening at the same time. If you zoom way out in the 10,000 year view of human history, all of these things are are on the uphill slope together. And, and so Robert might be able to say, well, it's, it's uh, you know, it's technology or it's this or it's that that's, that's leading to the, the beneficial results. And the state is only a drag on that. I personally, I don't think that there's anything to support that. I think that there's every reason to think that these are self-reinforcing structures in just the same way as evolution has said, you know, cities, that's a pretty good idea. The cultures that try cities, you know, they're, they're going to do well. And those cultures are going to start to dominate the other cultures that, that don't do cities. I, I think that, um, you know, the organizations of our governments into increasingly baroque and complex things that, yes, have bureaucracy, yes, have annoyances, yes, have horrible outcomes sometimes. Overall, it's still working. If it wasn't working, it wouldn't be the dominant organizational force of the world. So I think the question for me would be around the size, right? So if we're making this example around nipples, I mean, how much of the body is that taking up versus the state, which easily, I mean, depending on which government and which country you're looking at, it's you know in many countries okay gdp is not the best metric but in many countries the state represents something like 30 or 40% of the gdp of the economy is that a reasonable size for the state to be taking up it's the best that humans have invented yet. I mean, I, I don't think there's, again, I'm not making a moral argument here. I'm just making a, a realistic argument. I think if a s form of government had been invented that could still manage the lives of tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people and only require, you know, 10% of GDP, I, I think we'd see those forms and those forms would outcompete the ones that we have now. Nobody's invented it yet. 
Mm. Uh, Robert, do you have anything to add there in relation to uh, that argument? Yes. I don't know about the biological argument necessarily, and I don't know very much about nipple biology. Um, But I can say this for certain. Monopolies are uneconomic, right? They distort price discovery. They suppress innovation. um, And in the sphere of money, the monopoly we have today is fiat currency, right? So we have one group that can unilaterally change the supply of money based on a set of undisclosed decision criteria that benefit a group of shareholders at the expense of everyone else. It, fiat All of us on this call are against central banks. Okay. So fiat currency, which funds the bloated state, the state that would not be as large as it is, absent a central bank, operates on a false money called fiat currency that is a pyramid scheme used to siphon wealth off of the productive economy and reallocate it to the top to those that the the bank and its politically favored few arbitrarily select, right? It's antithetical to the free market, which is, again, the wellspring of all economic abundance. It actually constricts the wealth creation of the free market, which elevates socioeconomic tensions and violence. And it uses the proceeds of theft by inflation to fund violence at scale, world wars, right? So I'm making both a pragmatic and a moral argument that when you impede free market forces, especially in the sphere of money, which is the most important market in the world, and then you use those proceeds to fund the most anti-economic activity in the world, which is war, you're mobilizing people and capital to go and destroy people and capital, right? It's the exact opposite of what the free market is premised on, that that entire operation is both pragmatically wasteful and morally destitute. That's the argument I'm making. And then I would say this comes down to me of it really is good versus evil, right? And you could define, um, as Milton said in Paradise Laws, evil is the the knowledge which believes it is complete, right? So governments are acting today, funded by central banks, as if they are omnipotent, as if they can manage the economy, as if any human throughout history had ever managed a complex system successfully without creating a cascade of unintended consequences. Um, and I see in that that moral picture of it that the purpose of evil, I think, is to test the quality of the good, right? We, we create good and useful order through our work, through our hands, through our wits. And then inevitably, this evil force always kind of pushes back on it to test its, its integrity. Um, and I think good, the good really tests our potential, right? It's like, how much can we bring our imaginations into reality and, and advance civilization, frankly? So maybe government, centralized government, I'm not going to stand against it. I'd say maybe it is the best thing we've invented yet, right, for mobilizing humanity up until this point. Flawed as it is, maybe that is the case. However, I know it's not the best we can do. We're, not, we're nowhere near uh, a total free market paradigm. And in that sense, I think Bitcoin is this super state-like force that's going to outcompete 
legacy government and push us into the next stage of civilization. Yeah, so I very much agree with you, Robert. I think one point that it might be interesting as well to get Jesse's view on, and uh, Jesse, I suppose you're familiar with the space. Many of us are students of Austrian economics. And one argument that we actually can make, I believe, is that if we trace out the reasoning, we can actually spell out which things are happening because of capitalism and which things are happening in spite of, you know, and, and in the same way, we can make an argument, for example, we could say, look, people people generally do not engage in trade unless they both believe ex ante that they're going to be better off afterwards. And, it, you know, then we also, we can, you can trace out the chain of reasoning and, you know, listeners who are interested in more detail, they can check out some of the books like Economic Science and the Austrian Method by Hunter and Hopper, who spells some of this out. And he's spelling out essentially there that, in, in that sense, government does act on a drag on what voluntary interactions would have implied just economically, like not even entering into the moral component of it, just literally the economics of it. Um, and similar is in uh, Rothbard's Man, Economy and State. And there's a second section of that called Power and Market. So Jesse, I'm curious if you've uh, if you've uh, grappled with that kind of thing, whether you've had exposure to that school of thought. I, I've dipped my toe into the readings of Austrian economics enough to, um, I mean, uh, enough to have this conversation, but by no means enough to call myself an expert. Um, however, I, I feel like it quickly sometimes gets into um, more more theoretical than practical knowledge. And I, I kind of feel, I mean, th this is going to sound blasphemous, but in, in a lot of ways, it reminds me sometimes of the kind of things that Karl Marx said of kind of making these logical extrapolation that, you know, I, I'm using logical and scare quotes of, of, you know, thinking, you know, how history is going to go. And if, the, if you did this, then this would happen. If you did this, then this would happen. And, um, kind of pr pretending like, you know, several steps down the road of, of how all the second and third and fourth order consequences of society are going to respond to your, what you think is a great idea right now. Um, I, I, I obviously uh, it didn't work out so well for Karl Marx. Um, although I'm sure you know, probably Karl Marx was a nice enough guy. It's just you know, it, it, he there there were some flawed assumptions there that people tried to uh, push past the barrier and like, well, if we just work a little harder, it'll be okay. And, and obviously, it wasn't okay. It, it devolved into uh, totalitarianism, which you know, it, as awful as totalitarianism is, it, it's a proven concept. Like we know that it works historically because we've seen it plenty of times historically. The the communist utopia that he dreamt of, you know. As, as far as we can tell, that's there's no stable equilibrium there. Human beings can't do that, um, but but human beings certainly can do totalitarianism, and, and human beings certainly can do um, small group living where everybody has a um, you know a, a symmetry of violence. And and I you know basically going back to what I said earlier, the only examples that we have of symmetry of violence, government being you know micro, small, you know tribe level or smaller. Uh, all, all our historical examples of that are are rife with person-on-person -person violence, and and the less violent times in our cultural histories have been under much much larger governments. Um, and I just feel like it, it's disingenuous to not look at that real asymmetry in the data that we have there, looking back over recorded history and the types of societies that we have to look at, and the the person-on-person -person, uh, you know mortality rates in those societies, and to think that. We, we want to try to vector back towards something where there there's less government and less, uh, you know, thou shalt not rules for our fellow man. Um, one, one thing that I'd like to uh, touch on, and 
I mean, I know we're coming up on the end of our hour, so this might not be uh, something oh, we we're really going to be able fine. to delve into today. But I, I would like to broach the um, the idea is th- this idea of a free market, of, of where this actually comes from. Because it seems to me that the only reason that we have what we you know sort of call euphemistically a free market is because there are still some rules in place that are backed up by violence that allow me to think, well, trading with you is a better idea, even though I probably could, you know, stab you and run off with your money. And, and, you know, some of that's, you know, the social expectation that maybe your kinsmen will avenge you or something like that. But basically, you know, all of these rules that that make us behave like good little boys and girls in a free market are are, are still based on the, the threat of violence ultimately coming from somewhere. It's just a question of where. You're never going to get rid of the threat of violence. It's just a question of like, who who is, who is there to inflict that violence? I don't think it's fair to say that just because... Um, we don't have nation states or, or, you know, whatever the successor type of government to nation state is that everybody's going to play well in a free market economy. Cause honestly, I think a free market w- with a capital F is like Santa Claus. I don't think there's such a thing. I think that there's, you know, I- I either an, a war of all on all, or there's some sort of backstop where society is saying, these are the rules we will play within. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a few points I would have in response. Uh, personally, I would say we have to distinguish between, let's say, law and legislation, as Hayek said. So there, there can be law that is kind of agreed on, but that's not necessarily the same thing as government top-down legislation. And I could also argue that perhaps, you know, it, it just so coincided that, you know, we've seen these big nation states and the drop in the interpersonal violence, but really that interpersonal violence has come down because we're more prosperous and we see it, uh, there's more to lose by fighting now when we can gain more by trading kind of thing. That's there, Those are a few ideas that come to my mind. Uh, but Robert, let's hear from you. Yeah, so I think it's probably this is a difficult juncture in the argument as well, because we are talking about something that has never existed before. Um, but I'd like to remind the listeners that when the agricultural age began, there was no no record of past events from which to draw any perspective of the future. Like we didn't even have a Western conception of time divided into seconds, minutes, hours to measure out years. Foragers in that time, they lived in the eternal present without calendars and without written records at all. It wasn't until the agricultural age began that all of a sudden we had savings in the form of you know grain and food and cattle that we actually began to uh, create written records to measure those savings, which actually underpinned the development of written language uh, and tax code, right? All of these things. So to say that it's never happened before, so it could never happen, is just, I think, totally ignorant, frankly. Um, And Austrian economics, to argue that it was theoretical, Actually, maybe that is partially true because I think Austrian economics in its totality was mostly theoretical before Bitcoin because there was no way to maintain free market integrity in money, right? Every monopoly on violence, like it went hand in hand. Every monopoly on violence always controlled the currency. They always controlled the money because that is the most powerful tool in the world. Um, and we didn't have this sly roundabout way that, that Hayek alluded to uh, before Bitcoin. And, you know, to Jesse's point that there is this implicit set of rules that prevent people from just stabbing you and running off with your money. I mean, that's what Bitcoin is, right? Bitcoin makes it impossible 
to just stab you and run off with your money. You can't do it. Um, it's, it's money that cannot be stolen. And we have a society premised on money that can't be stolen. It creates incentives for hard work, right? Versus money that's easily stolen, like fiat currency, actually pushes society towards a kleptocracy. And I think in that sense, that's the, 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 the divergence here is that Bitcoin is satisfying these rules that are implicit to capitalism in a lot of ways, right? It's got a nonviolent dispute resolution uh, built into its network. Uh, it is a private property right that is agnostic of government and cannot be compromised forcefully. And it is an honest money, right? It, it is providing all of these features that capitalism was intended to do originally. Um, and in doing so, it's augmenting or even reducing the need for our reliance on governments uh, protecting private property rights and, and monetary rule sets and things like that. So in, in, in that sense, I view too, this is not just, it's, not, it's no longer theoretical, right? The emergence of Bitcoin as the fastest growing asset in human history, I take that as a market signal that Austrian economic theory, quote unquote, the, the, the Austrian economic theory of money is out competing the Keynesian quote unquote theory of money in real time, right? And, and as a student of the market, like I think it's very important for everyone to listen to the market. The market is the collective expression of the total intelligence of the world. It's always smarter than you. So to not listen to it would just be uh, the height of ignorance. And, you know, when, when we talk about comparing Marxism to Austrian economics, I think is completely backwards. Uh, the Marxist slogan was from each according to their ability to each according to their need, which is something that sounds great and utopian and whatnot, but he neglected to pay attention to Aristotle's wisdom from thousands of years ago. that said, when everyone owns everything, no one takes care of anything, Right. Without private property rights, individuals have no incentive to take care of anything or to plan for the future. Uh, there's no profit motive to organize society. So Austrian economics is, is the opposite of Marxism. Marxism says, we're just going to place all of our uh, eggs in this basket of nationalistic faith and devotion, whereas Austrian economics says we need to maximize uh, individual sovereignty and respect for private property rights such that each person takes care of the domain that they're in charge of, right? The, the, the sphere of knowledge and, and territory that they can control and manipulate. Um, that's how you create a, a productive, safe, and peaceful society. Um, and one last point that you were saying that totalitarianism works. Totalitarianism has never worked, right? It works in the short run, but they'd always just it explodes. It explodes in warfare and, and collapse, right? We've seen it everywhere that it's happened. Uh, Soviet Russia, Germany, uh, Cambodia, um, even in China, like they've had to augment their authoritarian command with free market principles, specifically in the, the market for food. Um, I, I'm talking about works on the order of more than a couple of weeks or a couple of months. Well, the, the moral of the story is that it's not a sustainable socioeconomic model. Well, sorry, Robert, do you want to just finish off your point there and then we'll go to Jesse? Yeah, I'm just saying that to argue that totalitarianism works, I think, is extremely misleading. It is not a sustainable socioeconomic model. 
the only thing that's proven to be sustainable and uh, generative of wealth is the free market paradigm. Okay, Jesse, let's hear from you. I think there are, there are obviously lots of different stable forms of government that existed throughout human history. I mean, we, we know that like hunter-gatherer tribal life is long-term sustainable. I mean, I, I don't think there's any argument that's against that. That's not a government. Hunter-gatherer is non Says who? Hey, I, I, you don't think those people have rules about the proper behavior and things that you can do that are that are approved of or that would get you, you know, kicked out of the tribe and or exiled? And it maximizes self-sovereignty, just like the digital age we're moving back into. You're pretending that that's not a government? I don't understand. It's a government, if you want to use that word, that maximizes the sovereignty of the individual through the symmetry of access to tools and knowledge. And that's the world we're moving into with digital tech. So I think one thing to clarify here is just around maybe if we were to distinguish between government and governance, right? So we can have private forms of governance uh, that are not necessarily the same as the nation states of today. Uh, And it's also important to clarify here that it doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be zero violence. I mean, I think in, in the uh, capitalist libertarian view, it's more like defensive violence is acceptable if the other person has initiated aggression, right? That's the general kind of idea uh, there. So it's probably useful just to clarify that point there. So uh, Jesse, what's your view there on that concept of private governance as opposed to government? I, I guess I just sort of view these things not as sort of ideas on a continuum. I, I I see like, you know, the smallest government being like a family unit. Like I have, you know, probably governmental authority over my, you know, 13 year old daughter right now, just by virtue of being the head of the household. Um, whereas, you know, the largest governments we have now would, would be, you know, the super nation states, I guess, you know, China or India uh, right now. And, and there's, there's obviously a sliding scale to all sorts of types of governments, um, you know, between those two, those two poles. Um, I think we could probably get lost in the weeds for a long time arguing about the difference between governance and government. Um, but I, I guess like it, the private government idea, uh, I don't see as being in line with what we know about how humans behave um, for, for the simple reason that like for, for everything to be opt in would essentially mean that everybody in society, whether they like it or not, is forced to become a contract attorney. And instead of, um, you know, knowing that there's some consumer protection laws, so my, you know, mobile phone company can't totally rob me blind and and take my money and not give me cell service, um, I would need to actually read through the 13 pages of, of small font print that that I get when I sign a, a mobile phone deal and, and things like that. Because technically, yeah, I'm opting into that, but nobody reads that stuff and nobody wants to read that stuff. And the reason that we feel comfortable doing it is because we're kind of pretty sure that there's some kind of like government backstop. And, and like, if the company completely ripped me off, I could sue them in court. And, and like, because of that, but like that ease of convenience in my life, I don't need to be a contract attorney. I don't need to know all the fine points of, of, each person that I interact with and how they might secretly screw me that I need to work into a contract. And that makes my life infinitely uh, more, more available to me time-wise to specialize in like one or two things that I really want to get good at and that I might be able to be of some service to society. I, I think where the, the kind of, you know, opt-in libertarian snake starts eating its own tail is the idea that everybody is self-sovereign and yet 
people also still have time to specialize in a way that we know benefits society overall, because a few people can get really, really, really good at some specific things. I I see those two things as being completely at odds with one another. If everybody's got to be a contract attorney, if everybody's got to be, you know, making sure that their defensive robot is ready to shoot their neighbor if their neighbor infringes upon them, then nobody has time to like get really good at, you know, writing the next book or or coming up with the next invention. Hmm. But wouldn't you also say then that now in a democratic socialist world or in a world where democracy is accepted, then you are expecting that people spend a lot of time following politics or following all these, you know, reams and reams of regulation that are being written in, for for example, in the EU, there's a lot of regulation written that also uh, makes it very difficult for people to do business. Uh, So I I don't think that I wouldn't really accept that argument. I think it's not really clear that having a government is somehow going to simplify things for us. In many cases, it actually uh, makes it more complex and more more friction, more difficult for us to actually produce and be productive. But look, I think we are sort of starting to get to uh, you know, time. I think it's probably uh, a good point here to have a closing argument or a closing statement from each side. So, Robert, did you want to kick us off there? Yeah, sure. Just to <clears throat> dovetail on the last point, uh, it was Cicero that said, the more laws, the less justice. Uh, when we create a, you know, quote unquote, market space for appeals and excuses, we're likely to get a lot of both. And I think that's what the world has become in a lot of ways that, you know, this, the growth of the top down government through the mechanism of fiat currency has led to a proliferation of legal and tax complexity um, that has drastically reduced justice, right? We've become very litigious. We've become uh, softened by the nanny state. Um, I, I just don't think that anyone that believes that the government support systems are the source of their individual integrity as a market participant, I think has just been indoctrinated um, by you know, government propaganda, frankly, uh, I just completely diametrically disagree with that. And I'd say to, to speak to the difference between the governance system, which would be, you know, apparently any mode of human organization, according to Jesse, like your family, all the way up to the nation state. Um, I, I think that the core difference for me is, are the rules voluntarily adopted consensually or are they involuntarily imposed, right? That's the core difference. Um, now in your household with a child, clearly there's a bit of a little tyranny going on there that sort of slowly becomes more free market as she grows up. Um, but between consenting adults, I think the best, most pragmatic and moral strategy for human organization is one in which the rules are voluntarily adopted, right? And this gets into the, there's a great book called Exit or Voice, where you can basically voice your discontent uh, discontent with a set of rules. And if you can't reach uh, reconciliation, you can exit, right? That's what we call forking in Bitcoin world. And um, I don't, I disagree that you'd have to be a lawyer to deal with these things because again, you know, say you're, you're, cell phone contract, because again, a lot of that fine print is driven by the legal complexity uh, inherent to a fiat economy. So as a kind of a closing argument, I've argued about this in a lot of my writing that free markets are generators of truth, right? And they're creating 
accurate and honest price discovery. They're encouraging innovation, uh, and they they're encouraging the the embodiment of individual virtue. Right, like you can only earn value in a true free market economy by serving your fellow man. Right, there's there's again. When I say true free market economy, I mean Bitcoin-enabled economy, and one in which you cannot go and steal uh, money from others uh, nearly as easily as you can in, in, say, the current economy. So in that way, I think we move back to this world that, that puts more of an emphasis on truth, on trust, on collaboration, on reputation, and we, we get out of all of this legal complexity and and one that just is more in accordance with with natural law, right? And we start to operate um, on a lot of the heuristics and protocols that ancient civilizations used. And um, I, yeah, general thesis is that if you haven't read the Sovereign Individual, read it. Um, it's they've drawn on a lot of historical examples of how society has radically changed based on the shifts in the power equation or the logic of violence inherent to society based on a number of mega political variables. And if you don't see by now that the digital age is radically changing our trust models and our systems of human organization, then I think you've been living under a rock and there's no sign that these changes are going to abate anytime soon. And it's very likely we're moving into a future uh, that's never before seen, where I do think the sovereignty of the individual will be maximized and the self-arrogated sovereignty of the nation state will be minimized. Fantastic. Jesse, let's hear from you for the closing argument. Yeah, I'd like to go back to uh, an idea that I thought, thought was actually a really interesting one that, that Robert dropped earlier about the the high seas and how they've been historically too um, you know cost prohibitive basically for governments to get control over and how that is uh, in some ways similar to what we see now with the digital space. Um, s- similar to the high seas, there there are other places that it's been difficult for governments to get control of until you know the mid part of the twentieth century the plains in the area that is now Phoenix, Arizona, was so hot and inhospitable that other than some Plains Indians that had an extremely low population density but did manage to eke it out there, it was basically a no man's land. And now Phoenix is something like the fifth biggest metro area in the United States. And why is that possible? It's possible because in the mid 20th century, basically it got cost competitive to have air conditioners in people's homes. And so now everybody lives in their little air conditioned bubbles. And all of a sudden where, you know, there's no way the state could have had control of Phoenix, Arizona, you know, 150 years ago, you know, other than just, you know, nominally having some sheriff's cars drive through and, you know, check everything out with the spotlight. Now the state has full control all because of, you know, the, the progress of technology. I think that there's every reason to expect that technology will continue to advance and that what might feel like the high seas or, um, you know, latter day Phoenix, Arizona now might wind up feeling a a lot more like something that the government is, you know, big G government is going to be able to, you know, get control over as they have with other, you know, former frontiers. Um, Frontiers get encroached upon. That's that's why we call them frontiers. And there will be new frontiers that we're not even aware of yet. But I just think that... um, Assuming that Bitcoin is some sort of end of history type event and that it changes everything and that everything else isn't going to have a counter move, 
is, um, you know, it just flies in the face of everything that we know about the world. I, I, I love Bitcoin. I don't want to come across as an anti-Bitcoin guy. And, and I certainly hate central banks as much as the next Bitcoiner. But I, I don't think that central banks are the essential element of the state surviving in the 21st century. I think that states will adapt. And uh, I think that they are wily and very adaptable be- very adaptable beasts. Great uh, points there. And I think uh, it's really been a really fascinating debate. And I think you've both made some excellent arguments. So just as we close it out, make sure the listeners know where to find you. So Robert, where can we find you online? Yeah, so uh, you can find me on Twitter, which is my handle is my last name, which is breedlove22. It's B-R-E-E-D-L-O-V-E-2-2. Um, you can also check out our website, parallaxdigital.io, P-A-R-A-L-L-A-X, digital.io. And I post most of my writings on Medium. Uh, that's where I keep my blog. And I also just launched a YouTube channel. So you can find the link to that in my Twitter profile. Excellent. And Jesse? You can find me on Twitter at Lollerpalooza. That's my last name spelled L-A-W-L-E-R and Palooza spelled like, uh, you know, Lollapalooza. And uh, yeah, I, ju- I want to really thank both of you. I especially want to thank Robert because I-, I did sort of, you know, troll him a bit on Twitter and and for agreeing to, um, you know, debate me in this format. I, I really appreciate your, uh, <laughs> your letting a Twitter troll become a, um, you know, <laughs> a debate combatant. I-, I very much appreciate that. And of course, I appreciate Stephen for hosting this. Yeah, thanks, Jesse. I, uh, I'm glad actually we did this. I truly believe that The Sovereign Individual is one of the most important books people can read in the 21st century. Uh, I think I've mentioned it on every episode that I've been on. Um, So I hope this helps spread awareness about its importance and the world we're moving into. And as always, thank you, Stefan, as well. Thanks, guys. I hope you enjoyed the debate. Let me know if there were any arguments that you felt should have been made but were not made. Would you like to see a part two of this debate? Go and find the show notes at stefanlevera.com slash 227 for this episode, and I'll see you in the Citadels.